Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to be together, to gather, to hear your word, uh, to hear of your love for us and your desire for us, Lord. We pray that you would open our eyes and make that clear to us, Lord. Uh, I pray that you would give me clarity and wisdom um, as I speak, and we pray that you would just reveal to us your heart, that we would know you in a true way, Lord. And we thank you for your grace, and amen. So today's sermon is titled, God Desires Intimacy with Us. That is the only point, that is the whole point of this sermon. That is all we will be talking about. So I do have a premise. The premise is, um, having an intimate relationship with you is one of the reasons God created you and he strongly desires to have close fellowship with you. Intimacy with you is one of the reasons God created you, and he strongly desires to have close fellowship with you. So we're going to, today, just look at six ways that that can be seen in the scriptures. Six ways that the scriptures paint a strong picture of God's desire for intimacy with you. The first one is that he calls the church his bride. So throughout the scriptures, the church is talked about as the bride of Christ. We're going to look at uh, three different passages that show that. Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's also look at Revelation 19, 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exalt. Give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And then Revelation 21 verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, uh, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned from her hus- for her husband. And this is just a few verses, but the church is frequently called the bride of Christ in the scriptures. So what's significant about that? What does that show? That's uh, in some sense, an analogy God uses, what does he desire to show us about our relationship with him through that, through calling the church his bride? 
Um, one thing that I think is important to note when thinking about that is that marriage is the most intimate of human relationships. There isn't a single human relationship or a type of one more intimate than a marriage. God purposefully designed marriage to be the most intimate of human relationships. But to really get the full meaning of the analogy, we have to go back to the first marriage, the prototypical marriage, the first marriage that was mentioned in the Bible, the original one. Let's look at Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, this is a very interesting uh, historical narrative that we're looking at. But since God orchestrates human history in such a way that he can use it as a means to make illustrations, we should look at what he's trying to say here in Genesis. Because God does indeed narrate uh, human history sometimes to make illustrations about things. In this historical narrative, Adam represents Christ and Eve represents the church. God made Adam first, uh, and then he waited, and then made Eve in order to make a certain point. God bothered to show that there was nothing in creation suitable for Adam as a partner. There was nothing in creation that could be intimate with Adam, or that could know Adam. But then God made for Adam someone in Adam's likeness, someone capable of having an intimate relationship with him. Sounds kind of familiar. Unlike Adam, God already had relationship in himself apart from creation. Nevertheless, there was also nothing in creation capable of having an intimate relationship with God. But then God made humans in his image, and out of humanity he makes the church. And he speaks about the church being his bride. 
So I think it's, it's important not to just um, think of the church as Christ's bride and end it there, but to draw it back to Adam and Eve. I think there's insights to be gained there. When we think about Eve, there's something that should stand out to us because it stands out very much in the story and the historical narrative. And that's, why didn't God make Adam and Eve at the same time? Why did God put Adam through that? It sounds kind of annoying. He had to realize he was alone. No one likes realizing they're alone. He had to go into a deep sleep. He lost a rib. That doesn't sound fun. Why would God put Adam through that? I would say it's because God wanted to make it, he purposefully waited because he wanted to make it painfully obvious that he made Eve for intimacy with Adam. He let the lack of intimacy be made clear. He showcased, if you will, Adam's lack of companionship to Adam and to everyone through the scriptures. And that had to be the backdrop before he created Eve. He wanted it that way. So it's made very clear in the narrative of Adam and Eve that God purposefully waited so that he could show that Eve was made made for intimacy with Adam. She didn't exist, and God made her in such a way where she was fit for intimacy with Adam. And then this exact passage is later referenced in regards to Christ and the church. Let's look again in Ephesians 5, at Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's what we just read in Genesis 2. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound, And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the idea that God made a wife for man for the purpose of intimacy is set forth in Genesis as part of the biblical paradigm of marriage. That's part of the biblical paradigm of marriage. It gets set forth in Genesis. So when God says that we are his bride... There's no way he can say that without implying that we are made for intimacy with him. The idea that the church is Christ's bride is very much attached to the narrative in Genesis 2. God made us, God made the church for intimacy with him. Just the way he made Eve for intimacy with Adam. So marriage is the most intimate of human relationships, and that's something we should take into account when thinking about the analogy of how we are Christ's bride. But I, I think we're, we also need to relate it to God's first marriage that he created with Adam and Eve. I think that's very important. So that's the first way in which God shows us his desire for intimacy with us, that he calls us his bride, that Christ calls the church his bride. 
But the second way in which God shows his desire for intimacy with us is that he calls us, he calls his people, he calls Christians his children. He is our father and we are his children. Let's look at some verses that talk about that. Ephesians 1, verse 5. God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then 1 John 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. There are so many more passages that talk about um, you know, us being children of God. We don't have time to get into them, but... Uh, you know, it's, it's a concept in the scriptures. So the thing we should ask about this is, you know, what does God mean to say by that? What is he intending to communicate about himself and about our relationship to him by calling us his children? What's the point? What is he intending to communicate? So there are a number of ideas that are supposed to be conveyed about God being our father. Fathers love their children. Fathers protect their children. Fathers provide for their children. Fathers discipline their children. Fathers instruct their children. And fathers are to be obeyed. And all that is true about our relationship with God. But one thing that I want us to look at specifically today is that fathers affectionately desire to have connection with their children. You know, throughout human life, throughout the world, regardless of culture, it's evident that in general, in all cultures, fathers affectionately desire to have connection with their children. And there are two passages I want to look at that show that about God. Let's look at Romans 8, verse 29. Nope, that's, that's the wrong one. Let's look at Romans 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then let's look at Galatians 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So we don't have time to look into too much specifics, but Abba is an Aramaic word, and it's an affectionate term for a father. Uh, from what I was reading earlier this week, it doesn't merely imply affection. It also implies an attitude of submission, but it is an affectionate term, um, a, a term that conveys emotional closeness, an affectionate term for a father. And God gave us a spirit crying out, Abba, Father. 
That shows that the Holy Spirit gives us the desire to have an affectionate relationship with the Father. The Holy Spirit gives us the desire to have an affectionate relationship with the Father. But God only wants us to desire things that he desires. God doesn't give us desires for things he doesn't desire. God doesn't even give us desires for things he feels neutral about. The only reason God would want us to desire something is if he also desires it. So we see in the desires that he gives us that are clear from the scriptures that they're from him, for an affectionate relationship with him, those are from him. And the only reason he would give them to us is if he desires closeness with us. And he wants it because he enjoys it. He enjoys being close with us. I also want to look at Jeremiah 31, verse 20. Is not Israel still my son, my darling child, says the Lord? I often have to punish him, but I still love him. That's why I long for him. Surely I will have mercy on him. So we see even in the Old Testament, God's affectionate desires for his people. Not just to have mercy on them, but he longs for them. We see a fatherly affection. You know, this verse shows that God isn't a distant or emotionally absent father. He longs for us. He strongly, passionately desires to be with us and us to be with him. He desires to be close to us. But even that isn't the full idea of what's meant to be conveyed by the idea that God is our father. I feel that that's just kind of a, a small portion of it. The idea of a father-son relationship with God or a father-child relationship with God conveys all those ideas, which is good, it's meant to, but there's something much more significant to see about the fact that God calls us his children. More than just that, you know, earthly fathers are affectionate and love their children and desire their children. A father-son relationship, a father-child relationship, conveys the idea of intimacy, not mostly because human fathers have strong affections for their children, but because a father-son relationship is what's used to describe one of the relationships that exists between members of the Trinity. That is so much more significant than all the significance that is there in God implying his desire for intimacy with us through the affection that he gives earthly fathers towards their children. God describes his relationship with us as a father-child relationship, and that's the same description he uses to describe his relationship with God the Son. So God doesn't use uh, this analogy just to say that his relationship 
of us is like that of earthly fathers with their children. That's part of it, but that's not the big picture. The more significant reason is to show that his relationship with us is meant to be like his relationship with his son, with Jesus, with the son. And there's various passages that point to that idea. Let's look at John 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Let's look at Romans 8.29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This implies that our relationship with the Father is like, his relation, is like Christ's relationship with the Father. It's meant to be like it. And I think the most vivid example, the most extreme example, one that Sam read in his sermon is John 17, 22, and 23. Jesus saying in his high priestly prayer before he died, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. So when God uses the analogy of our relationship with him being like a father and son relationship, you know, the, the ideas conveyed by earthly fathers is part of it, but that's not the big picture. The most significance of God's desire for closeness with us that's conveyed is the idea that he would use the same analogy that he uses to describe his own relationship in the Trinity to God the Son. He uses the same analogy about his relationship with us. God the Father says that our relationship with him is meant to be like his relationship with the Son, And that is an intimate relationship. Before the creation of the world and of time, God always had intimacy within himself. The Father had intimacy with the Son, and the Son had intimacy with the Father. But us having a relationship with the Father, like Jesus' relationship with the Father, means that we have been invited into that very intimacy the intimacy that existed in the Trinity before the world began, we have been invited into that type of intimacy. That is extreme. That is awesome. That is the significance of God calling us his children. So the third idea in the scriptures that show God's desire for intimacy with us is Jesus was close with his disciples. He was obviously close with his disciples, um, as we'll see. 
So how Jesus related to the disciples shows his desire for closeness with his people. And Jesus was affectionate with his disciples. He wasn't far from them. He wasn't distant from them. He was relationally close to them. The Apostle John really focused on this in his gospel. He frequently referred to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. And during uh, the Last Supper, we get a glimpse of Jesus' affection for his disciples. So during the Supper, laying back, uh, John 13, 13, 23, lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples, whom he loved. Jesus had close relationships with his disciples. He spent every day with them during his three years of ministry. He walked with them. He talked with them. He had affection for them. But there's another passage where Jesus is talking to his disciples that also shows his desire for closeness with us. Let's look at John 15, 13 through 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you to. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Bosses don't share their hearts with their employees. You know, my boss might tell me about the work schedule and what we're trying to accomplish this quarter, but she doesn't share intimate details about her life and heart with me. And Jesus is making that distinction. He was saying, you are my friends because I share intimate details about the desires of the Father's heart and my heart with you. Another example of God's desire for intimacy with us. Uh, The example of Mary and Martha. Let's look at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are so anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So I think it's not merely that Martha was missing out on the word of God. She could have just finished preparing dinner and then read the scriptures. And it's not just that she was missing out on information. It was fellowship with Jesus that she was missing out on. You know, Mary could have just relayed to Martha what Jesus was teaching, but she would have missed out on the fellowship. It wasn't just 
Jesus' teaching that she was missing. It was Jesus' fellowship. So I'm going a bit quicker than I thought I would. Um, So I have two more points that I want to talk about that both show why God desires and delights in intimacy with us. Uh, But before we talk about them, I want to briefly mention something. Um, So I've always heard some people say that God's greatest desire for you is to have an intimate relationship with him. I've mostly heard uh, Charismatics and Pentecostals say that, and sometimes Evangelicals. And I've also heard from plenty of other people that God's greatest desire is for his glory. I mostly hear that from Reformed theologians. And I've never heard anything that unites the two ideas very well. They almost seem to contradict each other. But I think that these next two points, when both considered together, really bring a better unity to those two ideas about God. So the first idea, God wants us to know his glory and see his glory. He wants us to know him and see his glory. So let's look at a few verses that show that, and then we'll talk about it in more detail. Let's look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Let's also look at John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is Jesus speaking this in this high priestly prayer in John 17. So this is eternal life to know God, to know God through Jesus Christ and to know Jesus Christ, who is God. I want to point out a few things about that. Eternal life does not mean eternal existence because everybody has eternal existence. You know, those who spend eternity separated from God, they have eternal existence, just like the rest of us. Everybody has eternal existence. But existing for eternity without knowing God is spoken of biblically as eternal death. And getting to know and enjoy God for eternity is eternal life. So looking at things like that and understanding that, we have to realize that Jesus didn't die for us so that we could exist forever, but so that we could know God forever. You're already going to exist forever. Everybody is going to exist forever. And then, let's look at John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So God desires that we would see his glory and glorify him. 
that we would see his glory and praise him. And God's desire that we know him is part of his desire for his glory. It's part of his desire that we would glorify him. Knowing God deeply enables us to praise him deeply. If I didn't know Teresa very well, and our relationship was shallow, and we didn't spend time together, then I wouldn't really be able to praise her very deeply. I could say that she's a great wife, but could I really even mean it? If I don't know her as a great wife, but I praise her for being a great life, wife, is that even sincere? Is it deep? Is it meaningful? Does it even mean anything? My praising Teresa is not very meaningful if I don't actually know her. If I say she's a great wife, but I don't know her as a great wife, that's not very meaningful. The more I know Teresa as a great wife, the more meaningful and heartfelt and real my praise of her is. And God doesn't desire, he doesn't want shallow and meaningless praise. Let's look at Matthew 15, uh, verses 7 through 9. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God wants our praises of him to come from knowing him, from having a sincere knowledge and heartfelt belief that he is awesome. He doesn't want us to just give lip service like the Pharisees did. He doesn't like the idea of us praising him, but our hearts being far from him. So God wants us to know his glory and enjoy his glory. That's why Jesus was praying, I desire that they be with me and see my glory. He wants us to know his glory and enjoy his glory and give him heartfelt worship and praise because we know him and his glory and we see it and enjoy it and savor it. So God does want us to know him, and that is connected to and part of his desire for his glory. And we get to see God's greatness deeper as we come to know him intimately. So that's one thing that connects the two ideas, that God's greatest desire for you is intimacy with him, and that God's greatest desire in general is to be glorified, is his own glory, but I think that's not quite enough to thoroughly connect the two ideas because it could lead to a very one-sided relationship. The idea that he cares about us knowing him, but he doesn't care about experiencing us. But I think there's reason to believe God does care about experiencing us. Not only does he want us to know him, he wants us to know us. He wants to know us. And that might sound a bit complicated or a bit weird because he's omniscient, but we're going to get into that. So 
the last idea that I have that shows that God desires intimacy with us. God has a deeper enjoyment of his own glory through intimacy with us. This is something that just like hit me last week as I was studying. Um, I kind of have a four-step argument that shows this point. So, number one, God the Father delights in the glory of God the Son. He delights in the glory of God in the Son. Uh, Let's just briefly look in details about that. God the Father sees all his glory in God the Son. The fullness of the glory of God is in God the Son because he's God. And the Father enjoys seeing that glory in the Son. I'm very glad that Sam Shampoon talked earlier today about God's enjoyment, God the Father's enjoyment of God the Son. That is very central to today's points. So let's look at Hebrews uh, 1 verse 3, part A. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God the Father, since eternity past, has always fully beheld all the glory of God in God the Son. And God the Father has always delighted in the Son. He's always delighted in that glory. We'll look at a few verses uh, that Sam may have already pointed out already. Uh, You know, the Father has great delight in the Son and always has. Let's look at Matthew 3.17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And I would say that, you know, part of the Father's delight in the Son is his enjoyment of the Son's glory, his enjoyment of the glory of God, the shared glory of God in God the Son. So that's, you know, part number one. God the Father delights in the glory of God in God the Son. You know, point number two. Not only does God the Father delight in his glory in the Son, but I would say he gets a deeper enjoyment of that glory because of how close their relationship is. God the Father has as much intimacy as could possibly ever be had with God the Son because relationships in the Trinity are perfect. They both love each other with infinite love since they're both God. They both know each other or know about each other as well as they possibly could because they're both all-knowing. And they've literally known each other and been with each other since forever. We say since forever, but we don't mean it literally. But God the Father has known God the Son literally since forever. So their relationship is as perfect as could possibly be. It's as close as could possibly be. But just like we enjoy God's glory more when we get to know him more closely, 
with more relational closeness. I think God the Father has a deeper enjoyment of his glory in God the Son because their relationship is an intimate one. I can't imagine their, their enjoyment of their glory in each other would be the same if they were relationally distant from each other. I can't imagine that their enjoyment of each other's glory would be the same if they were relationally distant from each other. So that's the second part of this argument. The third part, God made us to reflect his glory and he delights in seeing his glory in us. So two weeks ago, uh, we looked at how God created the earth to display his beauty and his glory, and he delights in seeing his glory in creation, and that humans were meant to reflect that glory in a special way, and that's why we're made in God's image. Well, we don't have time. Well, let's look briefly at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Because God made all creation to show his glory, to reflect his glory, to reflect the greatness of his beauty and his power and his attributes and his creativity. All of glory was made by, all of creation was made by God to reflect his glory. And humans were in a special way since we're made in his image. And that brings us to the fourth step of this argument. I would say that it necessarily follows that God gets a deeper enjoyment of his glory in us through being close to us, relationally. If God's enjoyment of the glory of God in the Son is deeper because of their intimacy, and we're made in his image and conformed to his image, then there's great reason to think that his enjoyment of his glory in us is deepened through relational intimacy, through knowing us close instead of knowing us from afar. Even though God knows us perfectly, that is, he knows everything there is to know about us because he's omniscient, he can still know us from within intimacy or from afar. Let's look at Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, the proud, he knows from afar. But God knows everything there could possibly be to know about the proud, because he's all-knowing, he's omniscient. And yet, in some sense, he knows them from afar. He doesn't have a relational closeness with them. And we see similar language used elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. But God knows everyone, or he knows everything there is to know about everyone. I think this type of knowing is a relational knowing. It must be a relational knowing. So God not only wants us to know him, but he has a delight in knowing us. And he would rather know us up close and intimate than to know us from afar. And he gets a deeper enjoyment and delight in his own glory through being intimate with us. That's spectacular. 
So it's, it's a two-way relationship. It's not just that God wants us to know him. God does want to know us. He wants to experience us with intimacy, not distant. The other great thing that I love about God's delight in closeness to us, coming from, you know, his delight in his glory, because we're made in his image, this means nothing can ever take away you being desirable before God. Because what makes him desire intimacy with you is the fact that he made you in his image. And nothing can ever undo that. No mistake you make, no, nothing anyone could ever do to you could ever undo the fact that you were made in God's image. And that is why he desires and would delight in intimacy with you. That's why he would delight in knowing you and experiencing you. Because you are made in his image, and nothing can ever take that away from you. So I really want us to see, not only does God desire for us to know him and delight in us knowing him, but an omniscient, all-knowing God does desire and delight in being relationally close to us. It's a two-way delight, a two-way desire for intimacy. So in conclusion, there can only be one conclusion. We should pursue intimacy with God. We should pursue relational closeness with God through prayer and Bible study and worship. You know, the, the biggest reason I could think to give of why we should pursue closeness with God is the fact that he desires it. And so that's what we talked about. Knowing how much he desires intimacy with us, there's only one logical conclusion, and that's to seek to develop a close relationship with him. And uh, we'll talk about how to do that more effectively and in practice next time I speak on January 8th. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your great desire for intimacy with us. Thank you that you created us to experience ultimate joy and in intimacy with you. And thank you that you experience joy in us. It's a sincere joy and not a fake joy, Lord. We praise you uh, for your wonderful purposes. And we thank you that you call on us to draw close to you using the analogy of your own relationship within the Trinity of you and God the Son. Lord, we pray that we would grow intimate with you and we would love it and delight in it. We thank you for your love and amen.